We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And away we go, episode 305 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, May 2nd, 2022. It is a new work week in a new month, although this is not the first installment of the podcast in this new month. Uh, A thank you to everyone for the nice words regarding the special scheduled emergency commander's draft episode of the podcast That came out on Sunday morning. You know, scheduled emergencies do not happen often, but we do have one during NFL Draft weekends. Uh, It's funny, I've been looking at all of the grades that the experts have been giving to the commanders for their 2022 draft. Boy, is there a lot of variance to the grades for the commanders for their 2022 draft. I have seen the commanders get as high as an A-. minus. I have seen the commanders get as low as a D minus. I mean, that is quite a range. Uh, This guy, Renee Bugner or Bugner, or maybe it's pronounced some other way. I'm not sure how you pronounce his last name, but he every year on the day after the end of the NFL draft puts out this great chart of draft grade GPAs for all 32 NFL teams. He looks at 18 NFL draft experts' grades for NFL teams' drafts and then compiles a GPA for each team. Well, the commanders for their 2022 draft are 26th out of 32 NFL teams with a GPA of just 2.38. Personally, I do not think that the commander's draft was as bad as the GPA suggests. But coming up next segment is a special guest. He is, in fact, one of the people whose draft grades are used in the compiling of the draft grade GPAs. NFL draft analyst Thor Nystrom of NBC Sports Edge. Uh, Thor is one of my favorites when it comes to talking NFL draft. I've had him on the podcast a few times. Uh, Thor is smart. Thor is passionate about the NFL draft and college football, and Thor puts in the work, okay? This guy knows a lot about these players. Uh, So Thor Nystrom will be on the show next segment with an in-depth breakdown of the Commander's 2022 draft, what he liked, 
what he did not like. Uh, Thor will provide his evaluations of Jahan Dotson and Sam Howell and Fedarian Mathis and Brian Robinson Jr. and Cole Turner, who we know already is one of Ron Rivera's favorites. Now, I'll warn you, Thor's grade for the Commander's 2022 draft is uh, not so kind, okay? But Thor's grade for Washington's 2021 draft was not so kind. And at least right now, Thor looks to be right about that 2021 draft. Now, things can change. We're only one year uh, beyond the draft having taken place. But judge for yourself, okay? I mean, you don't have to take anyone's word as gospel, but Thor Nystrom is going to provide a lot of intel on these players who the commanders just drafted. Uh, Also on the show, Capitals playoff talk. Stanley Cup playoff season has arrived. Uh, The NHL regular season is over. Uh, The Caps did not end their regular season in the greatest of ways, but the focus now is on the Florida Panthers, the President's Trophy winning Florida Panthers. Uh, They are the Caps' first round opponents. Game one at Florida Tuesday night at 7.30. I will discuss the health of Alex Ovechkin, the Caps' not-so-great goaltending situation, the crazy last month of the regular season for the Caps, uh, how the Caps did against the Panthers in the regular season and more. And you'll hear key audio from Caps head coach Peter Laviolette on Sunday. Also on Sunday was both the Nationals and the Orioles winning and clinching series victories. Imagine that. Both the Nats and the O's win on the same day and win series on the same weekend. Uh, the Nats won at the San Francisco Giants 11-5 to win 2-3 or in the series as the Nats offense awakened over the weekend in Frisco. Uh, the O's beat the Red Sox 9-5 at Oriole Park at Camden Yards to win 2-3 or in the series as, incredibly, the Orioles' starting pitching has been so good and this is no longer like, you know, a one-series or two-series thing. The O's so far this season have been one of the better starting pitching teams in the majors. I'll give you my thoughts on the series wins for the Nats and Doe's later in the show. A continued thank you to you for listening to the podcast, downloading the podcast, subscribing to the podcast. Remember, subscribing to the podcast costs you nothing. Make sure that you never miss an episode of this podcast as of early. Monday morning was number 49 in the country on Apple Podcasts in the U.S. football category. So a very sincere thank you to you for that. Uh, You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Marlon G on the Commander's Draft. Writes Marlon, about the draft, uh, the one-time Danny boy stays on the yacht. We still find a way to screw up the draft. Okay, the first pick I don't mind, but the drafting of a defensive lineman. We wouldn't have had to do that if we kept Tim Settle. We are overreaching. Even the kid, yeah, his name is Federian Mathis, said his agent told him not to expect to be drafted until the third or fourth round. Ron Rivera keeps saying that he needs to have success in year three. He sure seems to be self-sabotaging. Please make it make sense. Uh, thank you for the email, Marlon. Well, uh, I guess I would say this. Ron doesn't think that he's self-sabotaging, okay? We'll see if Ron is proven right on that. Yeah, look, I didn't love the commanders taking Fedarian Mathis in the second round when it sure seems like the commanders could have gotten him 
in the third or fourth round. Now, if he ends up being a great player, then nobody's going to care that he was taken in the second round when he maybe could have been taken in the third or fourth round. But yeah, you know, we talk about value in the draft, and that's an example of not getting ideal value, at least we think. Now, maybe Fedarian Mathis would have been taken by another team in the second round, okay? I mean, we'll never know the answer to something like that. But on the flip side, I did like uh, what the commanders did in terms of their trades in the draft. I thought that those were good trades. And I do like the commanders taking Sam Howell in the fifth round. Uh, Lots more analysis of the commanders draft coming up momentarily with Thor Nystrom. Uh, Speaking of Sam Howell, uh, email from Tony Andrews of Redskins Hub and NFL Capology on the commanders taking Sam Howell in the fifth round of the 2022 draft, writes Tony, Dear Al, Sam Howell hysteria is out of control already. Let us not forget, no quarterback has been successful and desirable out of 33 prior quarterbacks taken in fifth rounds since 2000. Zero for the math challenged. That's zero out of 33, 0% successful and desirable. Don't forget each one of these picks had a front office guru or scout swearing up and down. This guy has what it takes to be a starting NFL quarterback. On a side note, I wanted to give you a shout out to your sponsors. As a loyal listener of every Redskins podcast, no one, and I mean no one, transitions to a sponsor spot better than Al Golfie. <laughs> Whether it be skincare from Dr. Verghese or a legal matter with Polson and Nace, my man Al Galdi creates better commercial spot retention with his audience through his smooth transitions, great skills that are only surpassed by consistent drive. Way to go, Al. Jeez, Tony, I should hire you as my agent. Uh, thank you very much for that. I appreciate that. Uh, Yeah, I talked about what you talked about at the beginning of your email on Sunday's show on the special scheduled emergency installment of the podcast, episode 304. I mean, forget about just fifth round quarterbacks, the frequency with which non-first round quarterbacks become franchise quarterbacks or even good quarterbacks is really small. And there's no doubt that has to be kept in mind when you're thinking about what Sam Howell could become for the commanders. But just because a percent chance is low doesn't mean that the percent chance is zero, okay? There are non-first round quarterbacks who become very good NFL quarterbacks. And even if Sam Howell doesn't become a very good quarterback or a franchise quarterback or anything like that, an NFL team needs more than one capable quarterback. So if Sam Howell develops into a capable backup quarterback, then as a fifth-round pick, that's a win. I mean, we all would agree that the most important player on a football team is the starting quarterback. Well, you could argue that the second most important player on a football team is the backup quarterback. The position of quarterback is just that important. Just like the health of your skin. (laughs) Rod Rivera knows that. He's a skin cancer survivor. Skin cancer is among the most common of all cancers in the United States, but skin cancer also is among the most curable forms of cancer. Get checked, get screened, and someone who very much can help you with that is Dr. George Verghese, whose son, Philip, by the way, is one of the top junior golfers in the area. Philip is 12, 
He on Wednesday will be playing in the Wells Fargo Championship Pro-Am at TPC Potomac at Avenel Farm in Potomac, Maryland. So good luck to Philip Verghese. If Philip is as good of a golfer as his dad is a doctor, then Philip will dominate on Wednesday. I know that. Uh, but his pops, Dr. George Verghese, is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. Uh, Dr. George Verghese is one of the nation's premier dermatologists. He's a big fan of the Commanders. He's a loyal listener of this podcast. And operating under his direction is the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland diagnoses and treats a broad range of acute and chronic skin conditions, including skin cancer. In fact, Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer free skin cancer screenings and offer state-of-the-art treatments for skin cancer. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland are the DMV's number one outlet for Mohs Skin Cancer Surgery and for Superficial Radiation Therapy, or SRT, which is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. You will not find better, more state-of-the-art, or more comprehensive skin treatment and services than what you get from Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. Early detection and treatment of skin cancer can save lives. Uh, if you have questions or concerns about your skin, call Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland at 301-396-3401. That's 301-396-3401. And make sure that you tell the Institute that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301 396 3401. You also can visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. All right, time now to gain further insight into and clarity on the Commander's 2022 draft with one of the best NFL draft analysts in the country. I'm very pleased to welcome back to the Al Galdi podcast, NFL draft analyst Thor Nystrom of NBC Sports Edge, for which he also analyzes college football and is the senior content creator. Uh, Thor does a tremendous job of evaluating players, including providing NFL comps for players. You can follow Thor on Twitter, at ThorKU. Uh, Thor, I can only imagine what these last few days have been like for you. How you doing, man? <laughs> I'm doing well. I actually got a little bit of sleep last night. So, I, yeah, but, I mean, the, the weekend, what a, what a wild draft weekend. It, it was a pretty crazy draft process, and it culminated in a spectacular fireworks show. So I'm, I'm still processing, but we're doing pretty good on this end. Outstanding. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, you were kind enough to join me last year for the Monday show after NFL Draft Weekend, so I'm happy that we're doing this again. Now, your grade for Washington's 2021 draft was not good. Uh, the grade was a D. So I was all excited to see your grade for the Commander's 2022 draft, <laughs> and sure enough, the grade was even worse, a D minus. Uh, now look, I give you a lot of credit because Washington's 2021 draft right now does not look to have been too good. Uh, still, though, plenty of time for that to change. But with this commander's 2022 draft, why the D minus? 
Well, and, and I'm, we might have even talked about this last year, Al. But people need to keep in mind that I grade on a curve, so I'm going to have a couple F's. I'm going to have I'm going to have two F's. I'm going to have two A pluses every year, and the rest of them are going to be filtered in through there. I, I did feel like this year Washington had one of the three or four worst ROIs coming out of their slots in the moment. I mean, we'll always you know it's just my opinion in the moment. We'll see what happens in the future. But as far as what they did over the weekend, I disagreed with a lot of the decisions. I the, the real head scratchers started early. You know they were sitting in that 11 slot we knew all process that they were honing in on on the wide receiver position and we also knew that there was going to be this big wide receiver run there have been reports that it could be you know four out of the first you know 12 four out of the first 11 you know some we but we knew it was going to be something crazy you know however that ended up shaking out and washington was sitting in a pretty advantageous spot I mean, by, you know, a lot of people were, including myself, that that the receiver run was going to start with the Falcons at number eight. And so in that slot for Washington, you were sitting in a really good spot, however the thing shook out, to be at the front end of that receiver run. And and for me, you know, with the receivers, I would have wanted to be taking one of the top four because for me, that's where it dropped. You had the four guys and then it dropped. Um, And so Washington was there and they did end up taking the receiver. But the confusing thing was, you trade down five slots. I, and, and we also knew that they were thinking about trading down and, per, and, and perhaps wanted to to recoup some, some draft equity. But they pick up these two mid-round picks. I didn't think they did anything with those two picks. And then you move down five slots, and you end up being at, on the back end of that receiver run and getting a guy like Jahan Dotson instead of, you know, let's say Jamison Williams, who went in the next pick. I, for me, I would rather have Jamison Williams than Jahan Dotson and Brian Robinson and Percy Butler, if that's what it turned into, I would make the trade for Jamison Williams over the three in a second. So that's where it started for me. Yeah, so the trade that the Commanders made on Thursday night with the New Orleans Saints saw the Commanders go from 11 to 16 in the first round and get third and fourth round picks. The trade essentially ultimately netted the Commanders four players, Jahan Dodson, Brian Robinson Jr., Sam Howell, and Cole Turner. I want to get your thoughts on all of those guys, but let us start with the Penn State receiver, Jahan Dodson. Commanders took him with that number 16 overall pick. What's your evaluation of Dodson? The funny thing is I actually like Dodson. Like I I thought that my ranking on him was pretty bullish um, in terms of the industry. I ranked him as a top 25 guy right on that line at, at 25. And like you mentioned, I ended up with him at wide receiver five. It's just, again, there was that drop, that qualitative drop. The London, you know, London, the two Ohio State kids, and then Jamison Williams, those guys I had up, you know, 10, up 12, you know, 15 spots above that. And then I, I, I saw the drop to Dotson. What I like about Dotson is he's super duper sudden. He's very fluid. I like his ball skills a lot. And he might have the best hands in this class. That is a point of contention. But no one is going to disclude Jahan Dotson from that conversation when they're talking about that. Um, the other thing is, contextually, he he may have been able to acquit himself even better in a different situation than he was in at Penn State. Because Penn State's been playing with this noodle arm quarterback, Sean Clifford, the past couple of years, who can't get the ball downfield. Jahan Dotson's a guy who can get downfield. We just didn't see as much of that utility. Instead because of another contextual thing with Penn State the last couple of years, their offensive line stunk, their running back stunk. And so basically their offense turned into let's force feed Jahan Dotson the ball within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage and he will create. He will he will drag us down the field as both sort of our, our wide receiver and sort of our an extension of our running game that we don't have. So, you know, in terms of the usage, that stuff didn't allow him to do or, you know, some of these things that I think he could do or develop some of these skills 
that I, I think could flower in the NFL. Those are the reasons that I like him. But again, for me, you know, he is wide receiver five, but I just saw a bit of that drop between the top four and him. It's funny you bring up Sean Clifford. Ron Rivera at a press conference late night on Thursday night essentially trashed Sean Clifford. Uh, Now, Ron did it in a nice way, but Ron said that one of the things that we really liked about Jahan Dotson is that he did well with a quarterback who wasn't very good. Uh, I got a kick out of that. So the Alabama interior defensive lineman Fedarian Mathis, who the commanders took in the second round, The two big concerns on our end with this guy are he may only be a two-down player and the commanders overdrafted him. I mean, Mathis, uh, after he got taken, said that his agent told him to expect to be selected in the third or fourth round. The commanders took him in the second round. From the perspectives of positional value and also from potentially having overdrafted Mathis, what did you make of the commanders taking him in the second round? That's that's entirely in line with what my opinion was. I had him solidly as a third round guy, top seventy five guy. I ranked him seventy fourth on the board. I had him as the sixth interior defensive lineman. I like his game just fine. The early down work, you know, I, I saw Washington had, had tweeted out something like uh, Mathis is a damn bully or like something like that. That is what you like about him on those early downs. He, I mean, he's looking to, to knock heads together and try to get into the backfield. Makes a lot of plays on the run and everything like that. He's a really tough kid um, and he doesn't quit. Right, like you know. It, it's he, he's one of those motor guys. You're always going to get effort out of out of him on every single play. The, the reason and you're alluding to it, the, the reason why he, just qualitatively you drop him below a couple of the other guys is because the passing down utility. I'm not sure yet with him. Like I'm not sure if he will. If, if, you know, if there's ever not going to be players on the roster that maybe you would prefer to be in on on those pass obvious passing down situations. I love the utility on the running downs. We'll see about the rest, but just because of that, that's why I had him 74th as opposed to where they must have had him on their board in the top 50. Fedarian Mathis in his final season at Alabama did officially have nine sacks. His pressures went up as well. In your experience evaluating interior defensive linemen who are mainly run stoppers, do those guys get better as pass rushers at the NFL level or not really? I, I think I think it's case dependent, right? Like in, in Mathis's case, I want to see a more diversified pass rushing portfolio. You know, I, I want to see more um, uh, conviction on on the first moves, and then I want to see the more diversification of the counter moves. It, it, it's just stuff like that because athletically, he's never going to be you know the freak that some of those other guys are. So he really needs to. He has the power. He has that sort of bully game. Um, the bull rush is going to work for him. So he already has sort of the heater that the interior linemen are going to be waiting on. You, just, you know, think about it like a major league baseball pitcher. If you only have one or two pitches, even if they're really good ones, the hitter's going to be sitting dead right on those things. He got to come out with a couple more pitches to keep him off of that, that heater. And then also if they're sitting too dead right on it, then he can get by him the other way. That would be my thing with him. I, you know, I don't know how much th- those things are going to go up. I know athletically he just is what he is. But I do think he can get better. And of course, like you mentioned, the production did go up this past season. We're talking Commander's Draft with NFL Draft analyst Thor Nystrom of NBC Sports Edge. Friday night was an interesting night for us as Commander's fans. You had a lot of people not happy with what the Commanders did in taking an interior defensive lineman in the second round and a running back in the third round. Uh, the running back in the third round, like the interior defensive lineman in the second round, an Alabama guy, uh, Brian Robinson Jr. Uh, he was very productive this past season at Bama. You had him as the RB9 in the 2022 draft. Was the commanders taking Robinson in the third round a case of overdrafting? 
By a bit, in, in my opinion. And and I do, I knocked the running backs down a little bit on my board just because of the value. You know, I had them at 146. I, you know, sort of like with Mathis, I, I, there's a lot of aspects of Robinson's game that I like. It's, it's not me arguing against Brian Robinson as the prospect. It's just the slot that they got him in. He reminds me a ton of Chris Carson. And I think that's what commander fans are going to see next year. It's the big guy who's got really uh, sudden footwork. It, he, he ain't going to make you miss in the open. He ain't going to juke someone out of their shoes in the open field. But the, the one cut thing, he is so smooth with it. He's got vision to the line, and then he'll make one cut that'll make someone just completely miss in the hole. That's what you like about him. And then, of course, he brings the thunder, you know, a, a, as a power back. And I can see the, the argument why, you know, for them bringing him in to compliment Antonio Gibson and McKissick, stuff like that. I can see why, you know, why they would, you know, decide that he would be a complimentary back in that vein. Uh, but just for me, at the slot that they took him, I, I thought maybe it was a bit of a reach. The Louisiana safety, Percy Butler, commanders took him in the fourth round. Uh, Butler at Louisiana played both free and strong safety in addition to playing nickel corner. Uh, someone who you know, Chris Sims, uh, he raved about Percy Butler on Twitter on Saturday afternoon shortly after the commanders drafted Butler. Does Percy Butler strike you as a potential starting caliber defensive back in the NFL? For me, it's right on that line. Um, there are people that like Percy Butler, Percy Butler more than I do, and my colleague Chris Sims being one of them. For me, I was a little bit lower on him. I had him 184th on my board. They took him 113th. There are those skills that you say, you know, that, that you're alluding to, and so I think the people that like Percy Butler more, they're seeing him as sort of like um, he's not the same player, but like for. Um, Coming to you from Minneapolis, the Vikings took a kid named Louis Seen at the end of the first round. Louis Seen is a free safety that has all the makings and skills of, of a strong safety just naturally ingrained into his game. And so I, I think with a guy like Butler or, or any guy that has both you know tools to do both things, you, you see elements of both things. Um, the people that, that were positive on Butler, they, they see this sort of hybrid type guy there. Um, and then me being a little bit lower, I, I, I acknowledge the skills. I'm just wondering where he fits in, uh, you know, completely where he's going to be the best player on your depth chart at that position in any given season. Much more with Thor Nystrom in moments as I next will ask him about the commanders drafting Sam Howell in their continuing quest, their continuing hunt for a franchise quarterback. And speaking of being on the hunt, uh, if you're on the hunt for a new home in the Washington, D.C. area, you got to go with Kellen Hunt as your real estate agent, especially given the current environment. Interest rates are rising. Homes in the D.C. area are expensive, and the competition for homes in the D.C. area can be fierce. You need a real estate agent who understands this market and its current environment. Kellen Hunt is that agent. Did you know that in Chevy Chase, Maryland, 66% of homes are sold within 10 days of being listed. On Capitol Hill, 60% of homes listed are sold in 10 days or less. In Georgetown, 43% of sales thus far this year have been cash transactions. It's rough out there. Kellen Hunt will guide you through the process of buying a home that is right for you. Uh, Kel, he understands what it's like out there. Uh, Kellen Hunt is a real estate agent for real people, uh, first-time buyers looking for guidance, young families that need space to grow, the empty nesters ready to retire. You just need someone who understands the market and can match you with a home that meets your needs because this is what real estate is about. You, your needs, your dreams, finding the right place for you. And Kellen Hunt 
isn't just a realtor. He's a young entrepreneur. He's a father. He's a husband. He's a homeowner himself. Uh, Kellen Hunt is smart. He's creative. And most importantly, he gets it. Plus, Kellen Hunt is willing to put a portion of his commission back in your pocket. Yes, you as the buyer get a piece of the action. So here's what you do. Go to closeitwithkell.com. That's closeitwithkell, K-E-L-L.com. And book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs. Make sure that you tell Kell that Al Galdi sent you. But go to closeitwithkell.com. That's closeitwithkell.com. And tell anyone you know who's looking to buy a home to book an introductory call with Kellen Hunt at closeitwithkell.com. You have nothing to lose. Closeitwithkell.com. If you're trying to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, you will do well by going with my man Kell. Visit closeitwithkell.com. Dot com and tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. All right, we get back to NFL draft analyst Thor Nystrom of NBC Sports Edge. And the time has come to talk Sam Howell, the North Carolina quarterback. The commanders took him in the fifth round of the 2022 draft. Uh, look, I know that Howell is far from a perfect prospect, but boy, I loved the commanders taking him in the fifth round. Great value pick in my opinion. Now, I also know that you are a big fan of Malik Willis of Liberty. Uh, You were one of the first people to be really high on Malik Willis when you came on my podcast back in February after the Senior Bowl. Uh, Willis, of course, shockingly wasn't drafted until the third round when the Tennessee Titans took him. So was Sam Howell a great value pick by the commanders, or did the commanders err in not taking Malik Willis at some point? So both, um, I, you know, I would say if, if it was me, you know, and I got Carson Wentz and we're, you know, I, I like Carson Wentz enough, but we're going to take a stab on a developmental guy instead of taking Brian Robinson, for instance, instead of taking Brian Robinson in round three, why couldn't you just wait on that till round four and then take your stab in round three? You're going to get a guy with a much higher ceiling at that position that, you know, that's how I would, you know, because again, a lot of this stuff that we're talking about, it's just about value in the slots that you got them. But I do agree that Sam Howell at that spot, you got to take him there. And it's a good value. Absolutely. I mean, this is a kid last year, you know, you know, these coming days, Al, as you know, you're going to see a lot of these two early mock drafts for, for next year. One year ago at this time, Sam Howell was in the top 10 of every single one of those that you, you could find top 10 pick. Some of them he was in top three or even top one. So, you know, he, he dropped way off this past season. People know he lost the four um, NFL skill guys. Obviously one of them went to, to Washington. He, he can be reunited with him, but um, you know, his game fell way down. Uh, all the stuff did the explosion did the, the accuracy did. And Sam Howell, he deferred instead of um, trusting his arm and trying to make plays with guys outside of Joshua Downs who, Joshua Downs could be a first-round pick next year. We'll see. The rest of their skill guys were not very good. And when when Howell didn't get the look that he wanted with Downs, invariably he would start to scramble. Well, last year that was fine. You know, I mean, he he ran for over a thousand yards, but that area of his game doesn't translate to the next level. So that that's the one concern for me. But just as far as the slot they got him in, I thought that was the one exception 
uh, for Washington in this draft where they got really good value in the slot they were in. And this is coming from someone that was probably lower on Sam Howell than just about anyone. Like I called him the post, the postman. Cause I said he telegraphs everything and isn't going to be working on Sundays. <laughs> but, I, but I, but I, but I still think it was, it was good value there. Cause just on, on the, the post hype sleeper stab, if, if you're in the fifth round and at that position, if you get something out of Sam Howell, he turns into a starter. You're going to get an enormous amount of excess value over that slot. What to you is the upside with Sam Howell? Like, if I looked into the crystal ball and told you, hey, you know what? Sam Howell does end up being a QB1 in the NFL. Why and how would that be? A lot of it would be based on the the, the, the deep ball. And then um, hopefully he, what he's going to have to do is improve the progressions, right? Because when he got the look that he wanted at UNC, that's when he always looked like a first rounder. You know, like, that's one of those sort of like Matt Corral's coming out of where the 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 the, the reading of, of the defense it happens pre-snap, not post-snap. And you're invariably pushed towards the you know the the primary target or whatever. The the issue with Howell was coming off of that and going to the secondary and, and, and the third ones, and then the decisions that would be made once that ha- had to happen. But what he brings, it, it's the downfield throwing. Like his deep ball is one of the better ones in this class, just in terms of catchability, putting air under the ball, giving his receiver the best shot at it. Uh, Diami Brown would certainly be able to tell you that. Joshua Downs could certainly tell you that. Um, and then the other thing is, he, you know, he's a tough kid. He's a leader. Um, and he has, a, you know, the, the, not a dual threat element to his game, but he has enough uh, functional mobility, certainly. And he can he can steal five or six yards for you outside of the pocket if the look's not there. The whole thing is just going to come down to, can we teach him to read the entire field? Can he go smoothly to the second, third, fourth progressions if he has to? Because, again, that, that thing is scrambling. He ain't going to be running for a thousand yards in the NFL. So that cannot be his fallback option every single time the first look is not there. I got to tell you, I was hoping that the commanders would take Malik Willis. I know that he's far from a sure thing, but the upside to me is undeniable. What do you think happened with Malik Willis in the 2022 draft to where he went from being a potential top 10 pick to not being taken until the 86th overall pick? So, I mean, you never know what what teams know about kids that we don't get, you know, out in, in the general public. But I haven't heard anything, you know, vis-a-vis that with Malik. So if, if, if it all has to do with with the on-field thing, honestly, I think a big part of it was risk aversion. The, the You know, the, the NFL looks at his throws over the intermediate range. That's where he was on the very, very low end of, of this class in terms of the uh, the production there, in terms of the accuracy percentage and everything like that. But a lot of context is removed to just leave it at that. Those throws weren't in the Liberty offense. Number one, he, he had by far the least throws in that area of anyone, you know, of the top guys in this class. He was only like 50 last year. Um, and, and, and so you had that. He also had no receivers that could separate playing with him. He played with a, a running back that tested in the second percentile during this draft class. This kid named Joshua Mack. And he was playing behind one of the worst offensive lines in the FBS. If you watch the All-22, like every snap last year or the last two years with Malik Willis, you'll start to see why he was rolling, you know, scrambling out to the right on a lot of these dropbacks. The interior pressure was always in his face. Like even when the teams were just rushing three guys, but certainly when they were rushing more, he was always confronted with pressure immediately. So he, he didn't get the opportunity to just sit in the pocket. So, I mean, it, it was a part of the thing, Constitution of Liberty's offense, and, 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 a, and a part of that, when he went down to the senior bowl, finally playing behind an offensive line that could give him two seconds in the pocket. He was the best player on the field. 
not just at his position. He was the best player there, period. Got, you know, it got to survey the field, you know, and throw whatever. You got the juiced up arm. You have, the, you know, he can throw the ball 70 plus yards off platform. And then the ridiculous athleticism. He's, he's just on rushing utility alone as a scrambler in the NFL. He was worth more than the slot he went in, just with that. And, and we'll see what he can end up, you know, providing or whatever. I, I, you know, just as a running back, I would have drafted Malik Willis in the third round. He broke more tackles last year than Kenneth Walker in 175 less carries. Kenneth Walker led the nation, you know, for running backs, broken tackles. Malik Willis broke more. So, yeah, I, I'm a bit confused by it. But obviously the the, the NFL is, can, you know, concerned about the, the accuracy and the placement thing. I just think it's a little overblown. The, the, the last thing I'll say about that is on NFL throws last year, the number one kid in this class was Malik Willis, 10 to 19 yards outside the hash towards the sidelines. He was by far the most accurate quarterback in, in this class. 20 plus percent of his throws last year was 20 plus yards downfield. He was one of the most accurate quarterbacks in the class on those throws as well. Certainly has the biggest arm. I remain bullish on Malik Willis. I've not been this confident that that I'm right and the NFL is wrong on a player since Lamar Jackson. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Well, and we know what has become of Lamar Jackson in the NFL. Uh, one more for you. Ron Rivera at his post-draft press conference on Saturday raved about the Nevada tight end Cole Turner, who the commanders took with their second fifth round pick in the 2022 draft. Is Ron right to be so high on Cole Turner. Yeah, I didn't have any problem with that pick whatsoever. And, and I totally see what they're saying. Cole Turner would have gone higher probably if he didn't have a bad senior bowl week. And Cole Turner even acknowledged that like afterwards, like, you know, that it, that specific week for him, he just didn't perform as good. But if you watch his tape, he's one of the more fluid pass catching tight ends in this class. You can put them both in the slot. You can line them up at inline. Um, he gets down the field, spears the ball outside of his frame, everything like that. Like Carson Strong loved working with that kid. He's got an ideal frame. So, I mean, it, you know, and then he tested in the 73rd percentile as well. So, you know, the ball skills are there. The production was certainly there. The frame is there. He's got requisite NFL athleticism. Taking him where they got him, that was a solid value in the slot that they got him. Absolutely. Outstanding. Thor, I appreciate your insight and your time so much. Thor Nystrom, NFL draft analyst for NBC Sports Edge. You can follow him on Twitter at ThorKU, one of the best NFL draft analysts in the country. All the best to you, Thor. Appreciate you, Al. Thanks for having me on. All right. I always enjoy talking with Thor Nystrom, the mighty Thor Nystrom. With a name like Thor, you have to be mighty. Uh, Up next, the Capitals. Uh, They, in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs, will be facing the mightiest team in the NHL in the 2021-2022 regular season, the President's Trophy-winning Florida Panthers. Uh, Game one is at the Panthers Tuesday night at 7.30. Will Alex Ovechkin be healthy enough to play in the game? What is up with the Caps goaltending for this series, and how are the Caps going to do in this series? I'll get to all of that and more after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. All right, time now to talk Capitals, who on Tuesday night will begin their latest appearance in the Stanley Cup playoffs. So the Caps in the first round of this year's Stanley Cup playoffs will be facing the Florida Panthers. Game one at the Panthers Tuesday night at 7.30. Uh, the Caps this past Friday night concluded their regular season. Uh, did so with another loss, uh, a 3-2 loss at the New York Rangers. So the Caps went 44-26-12 and in the regular season. What an up and down last month of the regular season that the Caps had. So the Caps suffered back-to-back hideous losses at home nearly a week apart. A 6-1 loss to the Carolina Hurricanes at Capital One Arena on March 28th and a 5-1 loss to the Minnesota Wild at Capital One Arena on April 3rd. But then came the Caps putting together a season-high tying four-game winning streak that began with three wins over teams ahead of the Caps in the Eastern Conference standings, uh, a 4-3 win over the Tampa Bay Lightning at Capital One Arena on April 6th, a 6-3 win at the Pittsburgh Penguins on April 9th, and a 4-2 win over the Boston Bruins at Capital One Arena on April 10th. And then the final victory in the four-game winning streak was a 9-2 smashing of the Philadelphia Flyers at Capital One Arena on April 12th. But then the Caps themselves got smashed. Uh, got smashed at the Toronto Maple Leafs 7-3 on April 14th. But then the Caps had another blowout victory, an 8-4 win at the Montreal Canadiens on April 16th. And that win was followed by a 3-2 win at the then NHL-leading Colorado Avalanche on April 18th. Up and down the Caps were going but then the Caps ended up going just 1-3-2 and two over their final six games in the regular season, including back-to-back ugly losses to the New York Islanders. A 4-1 loss to the Islanders at 
Capital Win Arena on April 26th and a 5-1 loss at the Islanders on April 28th. So very much a Jekyll and Hyde final month for the Caps. Uh, they finish the 2021-2022 regular season as the second wildcard team in the Eastern Conference. And so the Caps are facing the President's Trophy winning Florida Panthers in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. But the Caps are back in the Stanley Cup playoffs, and the Caps are in the Stanley Cup playoffs for an eighth consecutive season, for a 14th time in 15 seasons, and for a 32nd time in 39 seasons. I talked about this a few weeks ago when the Caps officially clinched this playoff appearance, but geez, 32 Stanley Cup playoff appearances in 39 seasons. That is a tremendous feat by this team. Uh, Also, the Caps in the 2021-2022 NHL regular season got to 100 points for a sixth consecutive 82-game regular season. Remember, neither of the previous two NHL regular seasons was an 82-game regular season due to everybody's favorite thing, COVID-19. So the big item with the Caps in recent days has been the health of the grade eight, uh, Alex Ovechkin. He did not play in each of the Caps' final three games in the regular season due to an upper body injury that he suffered in the third period of a 4-3 shootout loss to the Toronto Maple Leafs at Capital One Arena on April 24th. Ovechkin suffered the upper body injury when he crashed into the boards off getting tripped by the stick of the Maple Leafs goaltender Eric Shulgren. Ovechkin's left arm and shoulder made contact with the boards. We do not know the specifics of the upper body injury, but it feels like it's safe to say it's some kind of a left arm, left shoulder injury. The good news is that Ovechkin on Sunday at MedStar Capital's Iceplex in Arlington, Virginia, was on the ice practicing. Uh, I don't know if he was necessarily a full participant in practice, but he was on the ice. Uh, there was video circulating of him in practice. You know, I don't know that you can say that he looked 100%, but he certainly looked pretty good. He certainly looked to me like he's going to be playing on Tuesday night. I would be very surprised if Ovechkin didn't play on Tuesday night. But you have the Alex Ovechkin situation right now, and you also have the Caps goaltending situation right now. And, you know, this has been a situation really throughout the season for the Caps. Uh, Who will be the Caps starting goaltender on Tuesday night? Who knows? Okay. I mean, who the heck knows? I'm not even sure if the Caps head coach Peter Laviolette knows. Uh, The Caps goaltending situation in the regular season really never got settled because neither Vitek Vanacek nor Ilya Samsonov was very good. I mean, that's just the truth. Neither guy has been that good. And to me, one of the most telling things from the Caps regular season was Peter Laviolette on April 4th, which obviously is rather deep into the regular season, uh, making it clear that the Caps' goaltending competition was back on. Like, that's not the way that's supposed to work. You're still having a goaltending competition in early April, but that's what ended up happening. And the competition really wasn't won by anyone as the final month of the regular season played out. But LaViolette put it out there on April 4th. Goaltending competition is on because neither guy has grabbed that number one goaltending job and made it his. Uh, But I mentioned neither guy having been good in the regular season. That is the key point here. You know, there's that saying in football, right? When you have two quarterbacks, you have none. You could perhaps make the case here with the Caps when you have two goaltenders, you have none. Uh, At least with this situation that the Caps have. 53 goaltenders each started at least 25 games in the NHL's 2021-2022 regular season. Vitek Vanacek finished just 29th 
among those 53 goaltenders in save percentage at 908. Ilya Samsonov finished 46th among those 53 goaltenders in save percentage at 896. Think about that. 46th out of 53 goaltenders in save percentage in the regular season was Ilya Samsonov. Uh, Vitek Vanacek finished 17th among those 53 goaltenders in goals against average at 267. Okay, I mean, that's not great, but that is top 20 in the NHL, so that's better than, you know, 46, right? Well, Ilya Samsonov finished 35th among the 53 goaltenders in goals against average at 3.02. If you have to pick one, Vitek Vanacek has had a better season than Ilya Samsonov has had. Neither guy has been great, but Vanacek has been better than Samsonov, especially when you look at something like save percentage on high danger shots on goal in five-on-five situations. Uh, according to Natural Stat Trick, Vitek Vanacek in the regular season had a save percentage on high danger shots on goal in five-on-five situations of 850. Ilya Samsonov in the regular season had a save percentage on high danger shots on goal in five-on-five situations of 785. It feels like everything you look at, Vanacek was better than Samsonov. So while nobody feels supremely confident about Vitek Vanacek as the cap starting goaltender, he this season has been better than Ilya Samsonov has been. And, you know, that's not the way that this was supposed to play out. Ilya Samsonov was supposed to be the Caps' number one goaltender, okay? Vitek Vanacek was a guy who was in the minor leagues for a long time, and Ilya Samsonov was the chosen one. But Ilya Samsonov, quite frankly, has not lived up to the hype. And he has not performed at the level that he was drafted to perform at. You know, the Caps took Samsonov with the number 22 overall pick in the 2015 NHL draft. And he just has not worked out so far. Uh, The Caps on Sunday held a media day of sorts for the Stanley Cup playoffs. Here was Peter Laviolette on Sunday on his goaltending situation entering the Stanley Cup playoffs. So um, I'll probably, you know, keep goaltenders as I did last year a little closer to the vest. Um, and, um, you know, there'll be conversations with the goaltenders. We talk about it as coaches. We go back and look at history. We go back and look at, you know, who's playing well and their seasons, who's played well against Florida, who's down the stretch here, who's done a good job. And um, we've got two goaltenders that we've utilized the entire year, and we'll we'll name a starter for game one, or we'll have a starter for game one at some point. And um, you know, we're, that to me is um, where where we're going to start. And you'd like to see the goaltender just take off and run. And like I said during the regular season, that was also the case. Um, but we used both goaltenders. Uh, we were able to win a lot of hockey games, have a successful season, somewhat successful, with 100 points, uh, utilizing both goaltenders. Well, whoever is the cap starting goaltender on Tuesday night will be facing an elite team in the Florida Panthers. So the Panthers had a great 2021-2022 regular season. The Panthers won the President's Trophy with an NHL leading 122 points. The Panthers had an NHL best goal differential of plus 94. The Panthers scored an NHL best 337 goals. Uh, That works out to 4.11 goals per game. You know, it's not the greatest matchup, right? The Caps with their sketchy goaltending against the Panthers, who scored the most goals in the NHL in the regular season at 337. Uh, Here is Peter Laviolette on Sunday on facing the high-scoring Panthers. 
you know, you just said that they score a lot of goals. So defensively, we're going to have to play well, um, do the right things with the puck. You know, try not to feed their offense. I think specialty teams will factor into it as well. Well, the Panthers' special teams include an elite power play. So there's that, too, for the Cavs to be contending with in this upcoming series. The Panthers finished the regular season at number five in the NHL in power play efficiency at 24.43%. Also, the Panthers finished the regular season number one in the NHL in five-on-five shot attempt percentage at 56.5. The Panthers this season have been the best puck possession team in hockey. Uh, There is just so much that is impressive about the Panthers. Their best player is winger Jonathan Huberdeau. He finished the regular season at number one in the NHL in assists at 85 and finished the regular season tied for number two in the NHL in points at 115. Uh, Now, in terms of the Caps versus the Panthers, in the regular season, uh, the Caps went 1-1-1 one, one, and one against the Panthers. Uh, all three games happened in November, bizarrely. Uh, but on November 4th, the Caps lost at the Panthers 5-4 in overtime. Uh, the Caps overcame a 4-1 second period deficit by scoring the game's final three goals in regulation, but then lost on an even strength goal just 155 into overtime. The Caps in this game dominated the puck possession battle. Uh, the Caps for the game had 42 shots on goal to the Panthers, 33. The Caps per natural stat trick in the game had 14 five-on-five high-danger shot attempts to the Panthers, five. Uh, this also was the game with the apparent, uh, shall we say, bathroom emergency. Perhaps you remember this. So the Caps for this game announced Ilya Samsonov as their starting goaltender, but Vitek Vanacek ended up starting the game, and then Peter Laviolette pulled Vanacek just 145 into the game. Uh, Said Laviolette during his post-game session with reporters of Samsonov, quote, we're probably just better off saying he had an issue. He needed a minute, end quote. Uh, Okay, Uh, TMI. Well, Samsonov uh, stopped 15 of the 18 shots on goal that he faced, but got pulled in the second period in favor of Vanacek. So Vanacek started, Samsonov then took over, Samsonov then got pulled, and Vanacek came back into the game. Uh, the next game for the Caps against the Panthers in the regular season happened on November 26th, a 4-3 Caps win over the then NHL-leading Panthers at Capital One Arena. Now, the Caps for this game were missing a ton of guys. Nicholas Backstrom, TJ Oshie, Anthony Mantha, Connor Sheary, Lars Eller, defenseman Justin Schultz. Uh, but Alex Ovechkin came through big time in this game. He had a hat trick, the 28th regular season hat trick of his career. He had a power play goal and two even strength goals. Uh, Caps special teams in this game were great. Caps went one of three on the power play, three of three on the penalty kill. And the Caps had a shorthanded goal. Tom Wilson had a second period shorthanded goal and two assists. Uh, Ilya Samsonov was a Caps starting goaltender in this game. He stopped 19 of the 22 shots on goal that he faced. And then on November 30th, the Caps lost at the Panthers 5-4. Uh, the Caps for this game remained without a bunch of guys. Uh, no Nicholas Backstrom, no TJ Oshie, no Anthony Mantha, no Connor Sheary, no defenseman Justin Schultz. And this game featured a total collapse by the Caps in a third period from hell. Uh, the Caps in this game blew a 4-1 third period lead. The Caps lost the third period 4-0. The Caps in the third period gave up an even strength goal, a shorthanded goal, and two power play goals. Uh, The Caps in the third period, brace yourself for this, had just two shots on goal 
to the Panthers 27. Yeah, you heard that right. The Caps in the third period had just two shots on goal to the Panthers 27. The Caps for the game had just 27 shots on goal to the Panthers 51. Uh, Ilya Samsonov was the Caps starting goaltender of the game. He stopped 46 of the 51 shots on goal that he faced. So it was wild between the Caps and the Panthers in the regular season for a variety of reasons. Here was Peter Laviolette on Sunday on the Caps' three regular season games against the Panthers. You know, we've had six, we hit, we, I thought we played well against Florida. So we go back and we rely on that and things that we were doing well. Physicality obviously is part of it. Um, the games that we did well, we were good defensively. Um, but where we were also good, you know, if you can take care of the defenses, we thought that we were good offensively as well. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's about just going out and just being physical. I think you have to, in the playoff series, you'll find physicality. You'll find good defense. We're going to need to create good offense, especially teams is important. So there's a lot of things that factor into it, more than just saying, okay, this is the key. If we can do this, we're going to have to do a lot of things against a team that had a really successful year. There's no doubt about that. Uh, Look, the elephant in the room as the Cavs are beginning yet another appearance in the Stanley Cup playoffs is this. Uh, Yes, the Cavs have made the Stanley Cup playoffs a lot over the years, but the Cavs have done way too little in their postseason appearances. I mean, that's just the truth. The Cavs have made 31 all-time playoff appearances coming into this latest Stanley Cup playoff appearance. 28 of the 31 have ended in a first round or a second round. I mean, think about that. 28 out of 31. The Caps have advanced past the second round of the Stanley Cup playoffs just three times all time, 1990, 1998, and 2018. And of course, the Caps in 2018 won the Stanley Cup title, and that was outstanding, and that was glorious. But since then, we've had nothing but first round playoff exits for the Caps. The Caps have been eliminated in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs in each of the last Three seasons. Um, You really would like for there to be more to show for the Alex Ovechkin era than just one time that the team made it past the second round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Now, again, the one time resulted in glory with the Stanley Cup championship. But boy, uh, to have not gotten past the second round any other time in this decade-plus run with Alex Ovechkin has been disappointing. Okay, I mean, I'm a Caps fan, but that's how I feel. All right, now it's better to have a cup title than to have no cup titles, but you'd like to have some more postseason advancement. Never mind a second Stanley Cup title. Of course, you'd love to have that. But how about like an appearance in the Eastern Conference final? You know, how about we get one or two of those? Uh, You don't have anything beyond the second round other than what happened with the Caps in 2018 in terms of this Alex Ovechkin era. Uh, It's going to be a challenge for the Caps for them not to be eliminated in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs for a fourth consecutive season here, okay, given who they're facing. Uh, But here's the thing. Upsets happen all of the time in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Uh, That's part of why the Caps have only advanced past the second round just once in the Alex Ovechkin era. And as we saw from the Caps during their good games over the last month, when the Caps are at their best, they can beat any team in the NHL. The Caps at their best can beat anyone in the NHL, including the President's Trophy winning Panthers. More from Peter Laviolette on Sunday. Um, I always feel that the playoffs are wide open. 
you know the the reg any any team that gets in there if they if they get everybody playing well anything is possible yeah it's so true uh the stanley cup playoffs are very unpredictable and so while the caps very well could lose this series against the panthers that happening is far from a certainty Well, when we last talked Nationals on the Al Galdi podcast, the Nats were mired in an eight-game losing streak during which they had totaled 16 runs. Yes, eight games, a total of just 16 runs. Well, here we are now on this Monday installment of the podcast, and the Nats now, over their last three games, have totaled 28 runs. Not bad. Uh, A good weekend for the Nats is They won two or three games at the San Francisco Giants, uh, one of the best ballparks in Major League Baseball. Oracle Park in San Francisco was the site of, at worst, the Nats' second best series of the season so far. The Nats did win two or three games at the reigning defending World Series champion Atlanta Braves, April 11th through April 13th. That had been the Nats' last series win until this past weekend as the Nats bats finally came alive. Friday night, a 14-4 win to end the eight-game losing streak. Saturday, a 9-3 loss, but Sunday, an 11-5 win. And so for the first time in way too long, we can play it. Nats manager, Davey Martinez, he is proud of the boys. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, thank you, Davey. Finally, we can play that again on this podcast. Uh, the Nats this season now are 8-16. and 16, And what was especially interesting about the Nats busting out offensively over the weekend was who exactly did the busting out. So yes, the likes of Juan Soto and Josh Bell did do well. Uh, Soto was an ad starting right fielder and number two batter in all three games in the series. He on Friday night went two for five with a solo homer, an RBI single, and a walk. He on Saturday did go over four, but he on Sunday afternoon went three for five with three singles and a stolen base. All of the singles, by the way, up the middle. Uh, Josh Bell, he was an ad starting first baseman and number four batter in every game in the series as David Martinez was back to having Bell bat fourth and the still struggling Nelson Cruz bat third. Uh, Bell on Friday night, four for six with a double, an RBI single, and two other singles. Bell on Saturday, two for four with a double and a single. Bell on Sunday, 0 for three, but drew two walks. Uh, Boy, has Josh Bell been locked in so far this season. But the Nats player who I enjoyed watching hit over the weekend more than any other Nats player was Victor Robles. Yeah, I said it. Victor Robles. You know, many years ago, there was a movie called How Stella Got Her Groove Back. Perhaps some of you saw it. I have never seen it, but I know of the movie. Uh, well, this series may go down as How Victor Got His Groove Back. Uh, You know, few players in the majors have struggled as much offensively as Victor Robles has since the start of the 2020 season. Robles in the 2020 regular season, over 189 plate appearances, had a batting average of just 220, an on-base percentage of just 293, a slugging percentage 
of just 315. But okay, that was the COVID shortened season. Well, Robles in the 2021 regular season at the major league level was, again, brutal offensively. 369 plate appearances, batting average of 203, on base percentage of 310, slugging percentage of 295. Never forget this about Victor Robles in 2021. The Nats last August 31st optioned Robles to AAA Rochester, and he stayed there for the rest of the 2021 season. Robles had last played at the AAA level in 2018 for the Syracuse Chiefs. The Nats last season demoted Robles to AAA and left him there for the rest of the season. Well, Victor Robles this season got off to a bad start, but he has been out there basically game in, game out as an ad starting center fielder. And Victor Robles over the weekend in San Francisco off a lot of recent work with the Nats' new hitting coach, Darnell Coles, was really productive. Robles in the series, 8 for 12, with a double, 7 singles, and 2 walks. Uh, Robles was an ad starting center fielder and number 8 batter in every game in the series. He in the 14-4 win at the Giants on Friday night, went 4 for 5 with a 2-run double, an RBI single, and 2 other singles. Robles in the 9-3 loss at the Giants on Saturday, 2 for 3, with an RBI single, another single, and a walk. And Robles in the 11-5 win at the Giants on Sunday, 2 for 4, with an RBI single, a bunt single, and a walk. He did strike out twice, but I mentioned the bunt single. Uh, This was beautiful. Top of the third, a one-out first pitch bunt single on a perfectly executed bunt to where there was basically nobody for the Giants. It was his second bunt single of the series. Robles on Friday night, top of the seventh, had a two-out first pitch bunt single on a well-placed bunt toward the third base side of the pitcher's mound. Uh, Robles on Sunday had a key hit. He in the Nats one-run seventh, had a two-out RBI single through the left side of the infield for an 8 nothing Nats lead. If you're watching these Nats games, Victor Robles over the weekend looked like he was back to playing with some confidence, looked like he was back to having fun playing baseball. I have to imagine these last few years have not been fun for Victor Robles. He looks like he may have found his swagger again. You know, I know that's an overused word, but it feels like Robles has found that again. You know, his mojo is back. We'll see. I mean, it's one series, right? I don't want to go too crazy, but this series felt different. Three multi-hit games. When's the last time Victor Robles had three consecutive multi-hit games as he did over the weekend? So terrific job by Victor Robles. You know, another previously struggling Nats player who hit over the weekend was Alcides Escobar. Uh, He has been brutal so far this season, but Escobar in games one and two of this series was good. He was an at-starting shortstop and number nine batter in each of the first two games of the series. Uh, Escobar on Friday night, three for four with two RBI singles, another single, and a hit by pitch. Escobar on Saturday, two for four with an RBI double and an infield single, although he also got charged with a crucial throwing error. Uh, This was a rough moment. Uh, Escobar committed a run-scoring throwing error in a four-run giant six. He had a runner on second, two outs. Kyle Finnegan induced a grounder off the bat of Tyro Estrada to Escobar, but Escobar made a weak throw that Josh Bell failed to catch on one hop. Uh, I've talked about this. Escobar's not look good defensively, in addition to not looking good offensively. Uh, this is his age 35 season. It may just be that we're seeing Escobar, you know, fade away as a major league player, but he was much better offensively in games one and two of this series. He did not start game three. Lucius Fox 
was the Nats starting shortstop and number nine batter in game three. And Lucius finally got himself a hit. In fact, he got himself two hits. His first two career Major League regular season hits. Fox uh, went two for five with two infield singles and a stolen base. He can run. Uh, He hasn't been much of a hitter or a fielder so far, but he can run. Uh, Fox came into the game having gone 0 for 20 with one walk in the 2022 regular season at the Major League level, but he did a nice job on Sunday. He and the Nats five-run first had a two-out RBI infield single for a 5-0 Nats lead, and he had a stolen base. Uh, We also, over the weekend for the Nats offensively, had two monster single-game offensive performances. Uh, Michael Franco in Game 1, Yadiel Hernandez in Game 3. So Michael Franco was the Nats starting third baseman in every game in the series. He struggled in Games 2 and 3, a combined 0 for 9, but Franco in the 14-4 win at the Giants on Friday night was huge. Uh, Number 5 batter, he went 4 for 6 with an RBI double, another double, an RBI single, and another single. And Yadiel Hernandez in the 11-5 win at the Giants on Sunday was an ad starting left fielder and number five batter, three for four with five RBI. He had a three-run double, another double, a two-run single, and a walk. Uh, Yadiel in the 9-3 loss at the Giants on Saturday was an ad starting left fielder and number six batter, two for four, with a double and a single. Yadiel Hernandez is hitting like crazy so far this season. 57 plate appearances, batting average of 340, on-base percentage of 368, a slugging percentage of 509. Uh, as for the Nats pitching in this series win at the Giants, uh, the number one item by far in terms of the pitching, and honestly, maybe the number one item, period, for the Nats in this series, the performance of Josiah Gray on Sunday. You could argue that how Josiah Gray does this season matters more than how anyone else on the Nationals' current Major League roster does this season. Um, If this Nats rebuild is going to be something that leads to winning again sooner rather than later, if this rebuild is going to be quicker than it otherwise might be, Josiah Gray doing well figures to be a big part of that. Well, Josiah Gray on Sunday had his best start of the season in terms of run prevention. Six scoreless innings. Yeah, six scoreless innings at one of the better teams in baseball in the Giants. Uh, Now, what's interesting is that Gray wasn't exactly pounding the strike zone. Uh, He issued four walks and a wild pitch. He threw just 53 strikes versus 40 balls on 93 pitches, but he gave up just one hit, which was a single. He only recorded three strikeouts, but the run prevention obviously was there. Six scoreless innings. Uh, Josiah Gray now, over five starts in the 2022 regular season, has an ERA of 312. I mean, that is really good. You take that and you run with it if you're a Nats fan, given the pitching problems that this organization now has. 312 ERA over his first five starts in this 2022 regular season. He has 31 strikeouts in 26 innings so far this regular season. That works out to 10.73 strikeouts per nine innings. But like I said, Gray didn't necessarily have his strikeout stuff on Sunday, but he still was able to put together an outing in which he tossed six scoreless innings. That, to me, is impressive in and of itself. When you don't have your best stuff, can you still have a good start? Josiah Gray had maybe his best start of the season without his best stuff on Sunday. Uh, Really nice job 
by Josiah Gray. I love what we're seeing here. As the sample size continues to grow to me, you're seeing a guy who can be a fixture in the Nats starting rotation for years to come. I mean, is he your ace for years to come? Ideally, maybe not. You know, to me, he's profiling more as like your number two, but whatever. I mean, he's profiling as a guy who can be quite good for the Nats for years to come. Need to see more, obviously, okay? We don't plant the flag of victory just yet with Josiah Gray, but uh, I'm impressed. I'm really impressed with what he's done so far as a Nat. Really going back to last season, but especially so far this season. Uh, The Nats, two other starting pitchers in this series, Aaron Sanchez in game one, Yoan Adone in game two. So Sanchez in that 14-4 win at the Giants on Friday night was good enough. I mean, he wasn't very good, but he was good enough. I mean, the Nats scored 14 runs. Sanchez, three runs in five innings in the game. Uh, I tell you, Aaron Sanchez does throw strikes. He threw 51 of his 71 pitches for strikes. Uh, But, you know, Aaron Sanchez is a reclamation project. We'll see how long he ends up staying in the Nats rotation. He's made two starts, this start on Friday night, and then he also was the Nats starting pitcher in a 5-2 loss to the Giants at Nationals Park on April 23rd, four runs in four into third innings. As for Yoan Adone, well, you know, there are things to like about Yoan Adone. He's young, he throws hard, he generates strikeouts, but he's giving up a lot of runs. Uh, Adone in the 9-3 loss at the Giants on Saturday, four runs in four innings. Um, he gave up four hits, a double, and three singles. He issued three walks and two hit by pitches. He had a hard time finding the strike zone. Now, he did record five strikeouts. Like I said, he does strike guys out, but he's just not very pitch efficient, especially when he's having trouble locating. Adone, over his mere four innings on Saturday, threw 86 pitches. I mean, think about that. 86 pitches over four innings. He also, by the way, committed a throwing error, but Yoan Adone now, over five starts, in the 2022 regular season, has an ERA of 733. Uh, he had one really good start, a one nothing win over the Arizona Diamondbacks at Nationals Park on April 19th in Game 2 of a doubleheader sweep, six into third scoreless innings with five strikeouts. Adone in that game became the first starting pitcher for the Nats in the 2022 regular season to complete at least six innings in a game. Yeah, Yoan Adone is the guy who did that, so he was quite good in that game, but in his other four starts so far this season, he has had problems, and he had problems again in this latest outing on Saturday. Uh, as for the Nats bullpen, so uh, this Monday, May 2nd, on which we are speaking, uh, is a key day in Major League Baseball. It is a day by which Major League teams need to cut down their rosters so that the teams each have no more than 14 pitchers on the rosters. Uh, There are some different roster rules for this season because of the condensed spring training off the lockout. And the bottom line is from May 2nd through May 29th, each major league team has a 14 pitcher maximum uh, in terms of the team's active rosters. So the Nats needed to make some cuts and they did. The Nats on Sunday night announced having optioned two lefty relievers, Sam Clay and Francisco Perez, to AAA Rochester. So this is going to be interesting because Davey Martinez's bullpen has been trimmed. You no longer have the quantity that you had been having. And Davey game in and game out is using at least three relievers and many times four relievers, if not five relievers. And we continue to see this over the weekend. Uh, Game one of the series at the Giants, five Nats relievers were used. Uh, They, for the most part, were good. One run 
in four innings, six strikeouts. Game two of the series, five Nats relievers were used. Uh, they were not so good. Five runs, three earned in four innings. And game three of the series, four relievers were used. Uh, and there were problems. Five runs in three innings. All five runs coming in the Giants' seventh as Victor Arano, Kyle Finnegan, and Steve Ciszek combined to give up the five runs in that five-run Giants' seventh. You know, the Nats in this game were up 8 nothing. Uh, and then the lead got trimmed to 8-5, uh, thanks to that five-run giant seventh. And then the Nats tacked on three runs with that big Yadiel Hernandez. One out, three-run double to the right center field gap to give the Nats an 11-5 lead in that three-run eighth inning. But the bullpen cannot keep being leaned on as the bullpen is being leaned on. Either starters are going to have to go deeper into games, or Dave is going to have to just let relievers work through some stuff and have relievers pitch for multiple innings, or at least just pitch for an inning. I mean, But part of the problem is when guys struggle, you get them out of there. I mean, that Davey had to use three different relievers to complete the seventh inning in a game in which the Nats had been up 8 nothing. I mean, that's not the way that pitching is supposed to work. And yet, that's precisely what happened in this game on Sunday. So we'll see how the Nats' new-look bullpen ends up doing. Seashack uh, did bounce back to toss a perfect bottom of the eighth with two strikeouts on Sunday, and then Tanner Rainey tossed a scoreless bottom of the ninth inning. Uh, no game for the Nats on Monday. Uh, they, on Tuesday night, will continue their nine-game road trip with game one of a three-game series at the Colorado Rockies. Uh, game one at the Rockies, Tuesday night at 8.40. Eric Fetty will be the Nats' starting pitcher. Well, it is still early in the 2022 Major League Baseball regular season, but we also are now into the season. Like, the season is happening, you know? The month of May has begun. We are more than an eighth of the way into the regular season. And so we are starting to get a feel for some things. And while nothing is set in stone in a baseball season in early May, we can incredibly say this. The Orioles, so far, have been a top half of the majors team in terms of starting pitching, yeah, the rebuilding, tanking, perpetually bad pitching Orioles, they so far have been a top half of the majors team in terms of starting pitching. The O's have a starting pitching ERA of 363. By Orioles standards, that's outstanding. And that team ERA was bolstered by what took place over the weekend. The O's winning two of three games against the Boston Red Sox at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Friday night, a 3-1 loss, but Saturday night, a 2-1, 10-inning win. And Sunday afternoon on a rainy day at Camden Yards, a 9-5 win as the Orioles, Joe Angel, were in the win column. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, Joe, the win column, uh, the O's this season now are 8-14. and 14. Uh, The story of this series for the O's, without question, was their starting pitching. Uh, somehow, someway, the O's are getting good starting pitching, despite their best starting pitcher, John Means, being done for the season due to having undergone Tommy John surgery last Wednesday. I mean, that's the thing. It's not just that the Orioles for years have been a bad starting pitching team. It's that the O's this season so far are a good starting pitching team, despite being without their best starting pitcher in John Means. Like, that's crazy 
when you think about that, uh, the O's got more good starting pitching in this series win over the Red Sox at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Uh, the good starting pitching started with Kyle Bradish. Uh, Kyle Bradish on Friday night delivered in his Major League debut. Bradish is the Orioles' number 10 prospect per MLB pipeline. He in the 3-1 loss to the Red Sox at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Friday night in his Major League debut allowed three runs, two earned in six innings. Uh, he gave up five hits, a homer, a double, and three singles. He issued a walk and a wild pitch. He did have just two strikeouts. He threw 81 pitches, 52 strikes versus 29 balls. I mean, he wasn't dynamic, but he was good. Uh, Bradish in the top of the second allowed three runs, but he then retired 13 of the final 14 batters he faced. I mean, how about that? You retire 13 of the final 14 batters you face in your major league debut. Uh, Kyle Bradish is in his age 25 season, so he is an older prospect. Bradish was taken by the Los Angeles Angels in the fourth round of the 2018 MLB draft out of New Mexico State. The O's acquired Bradish in December 2019 in the Dylan Bundy trade. Uh, Bradish was the major piece that the O's got back from the Angels as part of the trade package from the Angels for starting pitcher Dylan Bundy. And Bradish had been lights out for AAA Norfolk so far this season. Three starts, ERA of 120, whip of 0.73, strikeouts per nine innings of 10.2. So nice job by Kyle Bradish on Friday night. Then we had Spencer Watkins on Saturday night. Uh, Watkins in the 2-1, 10-inning win over the Red Sox at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. One run in four and two-thirds innings. I tell you, Spencer Watkins, or rather quietly, is doing a nice job here as a starting pitcher for the O's. Uh, Watkins in a 5-4 win at the Los Angeles Angels on April 23rd, two runs in five innings. Watkins in a 5-1 loss at the Oakland A's on April 18th, one run in five innings. Spencer Watkins, over four starts this season, has an ERA of 255. I mean, you take that in a heartbeat if you're the O's. And then we got Jordan Lyles on Sunday afternoon. So Lyles in the 9-5 win over the Red Sox at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Sunday afternoon. One run in six innings with six strikeouts. Now, he did put some guys on base. Lyles gave up seven hits, two doubles, and five singles. He issued three walks. He issued a hit by pitch. So, you know, this wasn't like a uh, pristine outing by Jordan Lyles, but ultimately, just the one run in six innings. Here was O's manager, Brandon Hyde, during his postgame press conference on Sunday on the performance of Jordan Lyles. I thought it was uh, gutsy. Uh, you know, he, he pitched with traffic for the first five innings or so. Um, that the way, you know, big double play ball made pitches like a like a pro um, to get out of innings, and you know, we needed him to go deep in the game today, and and uh, you know, he threw a lot of pitches early, but I thought a slider was good, and I thought he made pitches when he had to. So he gave us what we needed. Yeah, so you look at Jordan Lyles now over five starts this season for the O's. His ERA is 450. That's obviously not that good, but he has been good in three of the five starts. He has had two blow-up starts, a 5-3 loss at the Tampa Bay Rays on April 9th, five runs in five innings, and then a 12-8 loss at the New York Yankees last Tuesday night, six runs in four and two-thirds innings. Uh, Lyles gave up three home runs in that game, including two homers to Yankees first baseman Anthony Rizzo. But Lyles, in his other three starts, has been pretty good. A 2-1, 11-inning win over the Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on April 15th, one run in five and a third innings. A 1-0 win at the Oakland A's on April 20th, five scoreless innings 
with six strikeouts. And now what Lyles did on Sunday afternoon, one run in six innings with six strikeouts. Uh, not bad. I mean, I did not have a lot of faith in Jordan Lyles. Uh, the O's on March 12th officially announced the signing of Lyles to a one-year contract with a club option for 2023. The O's are Lyles' seventh major league team. He pitched for the Texas Rangers the last two seasons. Uh, Lyles over the 2020 and 2021 regular seasons for the Rangers, an ERA of 560. So I did not have high expectations for Jordan Lyles. He has been better than I thought he would be, at least so far for the O's. Uh, Also for the O's in this series win over the Red Sox, uh, some very good work by starters turned relievers. I'm talking about Keegan Aiken and Jorge Lopez. Uh, Aiken in game one of the series was good again in relief. Aiken on Friday night, two and two-thirds scoreless innings. Uh, Aiken now this season has an ERA of 1.26 over 14 and a third innings. And Jorge Lopez in game two was good again in relief. Lopez on Saturday night, two scoreless innings, a perfect top of the ninth and a scoreless top of the 10th. Lopez now this season has an ERA of 159 over 11 and a third innings. And it's a good thing that Aiken and Lopez are doing well because the O's now are down a relief pitcher option. Uh, Reliever Alexander Wells is going to be out for a while. The O's on Friday put Wells on the 10-day injured list retroactive to April 27th with left elbow inflammation. And then the O's on Sunday announced that Wells will be out for 8 to 12 weeks with a grade 1 strain in his left ulnar collateral ligament, uh, the UCL, uh, that is the Tommy John surgery ligament. Now, the good news is that no surgery is expected for Wells for now, but uh, obviously that is something uh, to be monitoring here. But no Alexander Wells for a while, but Keegan Aiken and Jorge Lopez continue to do a good job. Now, the Orioles' offense over the weekend wasn't great, but there were some good performances. Uh, Ryan Mountcastle in the game on Friday night as the Orioles starting first baseman and number three batter had a leadoff homer in the bottom of the ninth for the Orioles only run in the game. Uh, the homer went a projected 423 feet for StatCast and was the first home run over the new left field wall at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. So Ryan Mountcastle is the guy, the first guy to clear the new left field wall at Camden Yards. Also Mountcastle had a leadoff single on an 0-2 pitch in the bottom of the seventh. Uh, Mountcastle in this game returned from a two-game absence caused by neck stiffness. Now, I mentioned the new wall at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. The idea with the new wall, move it back, raise it up, uh, make Camden Yards more of a pitcher's park. Well, Anthony Santander on Sunday afternoon got robbed of a grand slam by the new left field wall. He had a deep two-out RBI sack fly in an Orioles three-run fifth. So the new left field wall can giveth, as happened with Ryan Mountcastle, and the new left field wall can taketh away, as happened with Anthony Santander, but Santander on Sunday afternoon as the Orioles starting right fielder and number two batter had a single in the bottom of the fourth during which he did get caught on an attempted steal of second base. Also had a one out two run single on an 0-2 pitch in a six run six inning for the Orioles that included a rain delay of two hours, five minutes. That was a lengthy day at the ballpark on Sunday with that two plus hour rain delay. And the rain delay happened in an inning that ended up being a six run inning for the O's. So they got going, then you had a two-plus-hour rain delay, and then the O's got back to getting going uh, with that six-run, six-inning. But nice job by the O's in this series win over the Red Sox, especially from a starting pitching standpoint. Next up for the O's, a four-game series against the Minnesota Twins at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Game one, Monday night at 7.05. Tyler Wells will be the Orioles' starting pitcher.
All right, two more items before we call it a show. Uh, how about the Maryland football news? Uh, Maryland on Friday announced that head coach Mike Loxley has agreed to terms on a new five-year contract that runs through the 2026 season with incentives that could extend the contract up to two additional years. Now, my initial reaction to this was, uh, why exactly? Uh, I mean, I like Coach Loxley, but he hasn't exactly killed it as Terrapin's head coach so far. Now, this past season was a step forward season, but there still is a lot of work to be done with the program. And the idea that like Loxley as Terps head coach has been some slam dunk success. I mean, I don't view him that way. I mean, the Terps still routinely get blasted by ranked Big Ten teams. But I then saw this, a tweet from this guy, Matt Zenitz of On3 Sports. Uh, Matt Zenitz is a senior national college football reporter, uh, wrote Matt in his tweet, quote, a note on Loxley, prior to the Miami Dolphins hiring Mike McDaniel, Loxley, who coached Miami quarterback Tua Tungavailoa at Alabama, was among the coaches to interview for the Dolphins' head coaching job. End quote. Uh, I had not seen that previously. I'm not sure that anyone else has reported that. So you know what? If there is NFL interest in Mike Loxley, if there are other schools interested in Mike Loxley, then if you're Maryland, I do get locking him up to a new contract. Now, who knows what kind of outs are in the contract? You know, the devil, of course, always in the details with deals like this one. So just because Loxley has gotten a new five-year contract doesn't mean that, you know, all of the money is absolutely guaranteed. Doesn't mean that there aren't outs for the school. Um, So, you know, you got to see what exactly is in the fine print. But man, that's something. Mike Loxley, over his first two seasons, as Maryland's full-time head coach, because remember, he was interim head coach back in 2015. But in terms of this tenure as Maryland head coach, his first two seasons, 2019 and 2020, he went a combined 5-12, and 12, including 3-11 and 11 in the Big Ten. Now, this past season was better. Like I said, step forward season. Maryland went 7-6 and six and won the pinstripe bowl at Yankee Stadium, uh, slamming Virginia Tech, if you recall. Uh, but even this past season, the Terps only went 3-6 and six in the Big Ten. And like I said, and as I have chronicled on this podcast, the Terps routinely get embarrassed in games against ranked Big Ten teams. So by no means has like Maryland football arrived with Mike Loxley. Um, there is still a ways to go. But I do like Mike Loxley, and he is a terrific recruiter. I will say that. He gets a lot of highly touted recruits. Uh, Also, we have more Georgetown basketball news, but this news is good news. No, it's not that another Hoyas player has entered the NCAA transfer portal, although I haven't refreshed Twitter over the last five minutes, so let me get back to you on that. (laughs) But Georgetown on Saturday afternoon announced the addition of another player, uh, Jay Heath. Uh, Heath was most recently at Arizona State, was previously at Boston College. He is a native Washingtonian, played the final two years of his career at Woodrow Wilson High School. Uh, Heath at Arizona State this past season was second on the team in points per game at 10.6. He scored in double figures 17 times for Arizona State this past season. Heath, during the 2020-2021 season, was Boston College's leading scorer, 14.5 points per game. So, you know, if you're a Georgetown fan, there's been a lot to keep track of because a lot of guys have entered the NCAA transfer portal, but Georgetown is also bringing in 
a bunch of new players. So this really seems to be a revamping of the team by head coach Patrick Ewing off the team. Remember, going 0-20 in Big East games this past season. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday show, episode 306. We'll feature much more on the commanders of their 2022 draft, and we'll feature much more preview of the Capitals' first round series against the Florida Panthers in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Game one, Tuesday night at 7.30. Also, we'll talk Orioles as they on Monday night at 7.05. We'll get a four-game series against the Minnesota Twins at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. I remain bullish on Malik Willis. I've not been this confident that that I'm right and the NFL's wrong on a player since Lamar Jackson. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.